This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. When I was 12 years old, my best friend was also named Debbie. Like me, she loved magazines and fashion, and we both loved to write and draw and paint. The months before we went into sixth grade, we spent the entire summer creating a magazine, which because we were both named Debbie, we titled Debutante. We spent endless hours writing all the articles in longhand, and we illustrated all the pictures. We became consumed with the creation of this publication. We interviewed people we knew for tell-all articles. We initiated our own surveys about boys and clothes and even kissing, though I doubt either of us had ever kissed anyone, at least romantically. We went through all of our own magazines and books for ideas, and we were deliriously and passionately obsessed with our creation. We loved making all our own decisions about what to include and what not to, and what we seemed culturally important in that summer of 1973. The only disagreement we ever had was over who was going to keep the original copy. For us, it was a perfect summer. For me, the notion of doing it myself was not a novel concept. My mother supported our divorced family as a seamstress, and because we didn't have a lot of money, the first recourse for anything we wanted or needed was to make it ourselves. My school lunches were bagged, my textbook covers were made from the Sunday comics, and though I was profoundly embarrassed about it at the time, most of my clothes were handmade, sewn by either mom, by me, or knitted by my grandmother. My makeshift wardrobe included an embroidered red corduroy overalls, complete with a matching bolero jacket, a hot pink puffy-sleeved shirt with a purple butterfly applique on the front, and a sky-blue cable knit fisherman's sweater with a matching hat. I subsequently made a skirt to match my pink puffy shirt, but scorched it with an iron when trying to press the rather complicated pleated front. As you can well imagine, there was no consoling me that day. All through junior high school, I looked longingly at the girls in their cool Levi's jeans and their lovely professionally made designer polos and was envious at their starboard crispness and their effortless fashion sophistication. I felt shabby and meager in comparison. As my mother was aware of my Levi's and Lacoste envy, she offered to make me the very same clothes and stitch an orangey red tag onto the back pocket of a pair of no-brand blue jeans and glue a crocodile patch from the Lee Ward's craft store onto the front of my new polo shirt from Odell's. While that plan didn't quite suit my aspirations of being a 7th grade trendsetter, or at least voted the best dressed girl at Elwood Junior High, I eagerly poured through the racks at Lee Ward's desperately searching for a crocodile patch to stick into the front of a new pink polo shirt. Alas, there were none. The best I came up with was a cute rendition of Tony the Tiger, but that really wasn't the fashion image I was striving for. Back then, there seemed to be a profound difference between doing something myself when I wanted to and doing something myself when I had no other choice. 
making my own magazine was a thrill and a challenge, but making my own wardrobe or having my mother make it for me felt like a castigation of sorts. This all changed this past December. Every week as the months wind down and the holidays take over, I take two weeks off from work. I try to squeeze 12 months' worth of errands and home aspirations into those two weeks and cram the days with necessary chores like having the chimney swept, silly but deeply fulfilling chores like alphabetizing my CDs, and pesky perpetual chores like finally cleaning out the closet beneath the stairs. This year I actually got to cleaning out the closet and it was stuffed with boxes of books and abandoned knickknacks and badly rewired lamps and broken speakers and dog kennels and old paint cans and power tools. I took everything out and opened up every box and bag. There were cartons I hadn't opened in 20 years. They had remained taped shut from one move to move, and I remained reluctant to throw anything out I might one day regret. As I perused through photo albums and wedding albums and college textbooks and journals and letters and postcards, I relived three decades of my life, complete with laughter, tears, snickers, shrieks, and groans. After two days, I was down to two boxes. I was ready to give up on the task as I was exhausted both physically and emotionally, but I pressed on, and when I opened the boxes, I discovered neat piles of clothes sweaters and jackets, hats and blouses. They were the handmade clothes that my mother and grandmother had designed for me. There was the job interview blouse from the early 1980s, complete with elegant neck bow, a brown tie-dye cowboy jacket with its groovy polyester leopard print lining, a navy blue bolero jacket with embroidered trim, and the sky blue fisherman sweater and its matching hat. My heart stopped when I saw the abundance of what I had uncovered. The sweater was the only one left that I had of my long-gone grandmother, and it is the only evidence of her incredible handwork. I held the clothes close and realized how much time and energy and love must have gone into their making, and I was ashamed at how I once was embarrassed by their handmade nature. I realized then how much effort mom and grandma put into every detail as they strived in their own way to make me feel pretty and fashionable and special. We are living in a time now where knitting and sewing and doing it yourself have become au courant. In reconsidering my own family's efforts, I can't help but wonder if our doing it ourselves was really another way of doing it for love. In looking at the myriad of things we can now all do for ourselves, The one common denominator I find in all of our efforts is doing what we love. For ultimately, no matter who we are doing it for, when we do it for ourselves, we do it for the purest and most sincere of reasons, because we love what it is we are doing, and if we're lucky, we love who we are doing it for. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest today is Ellen Lupton. Before we get started with today's interview, let me tell you a bit more about her. Ellen Lupton is a writer, she's a curator, and a graphic designer. She is the director of the MFA program in graphic design at Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. She is also curator of contemporary design at Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York City, where she has organized numerous exhibitions, each accompanied by a major publication, including the National Design Triennial Series, Skin, Surface, Substance, and Design, Graphic Design in the Mechanical Age, Mixing Messages, and Mechanical Brides, Women, and Machines from Office to Home. 
She recently completed the book DIY, Design It Yourself, with her graduate students at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And Ellen has dedicated her career to raising public awareness and critical understanding of graphic design. She's a graduate of the Cooper Union, and she is completing her doctorate in communication design at University of Baltimore. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Well, let's get started and talk about your new book, DIY, which stands for Design It Yourself, a design handbook that you created with your students from the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. It is a wonderful book teaching non-designers and designers alike how to create their own blogs, books, business cards, logos, websites, wall graphics, which is a particular favorite of mine, and so much more. Um, Tell us what motivated you to, to do this book in the first place. Well, I believe that graphic design is a public language, that it's something that everybody on this planet should have access to. And some people approach what we do as a profession that is secret and that we should protect from everyday people. Um, My opinion is quite different. I feel that everyone... um, has the right and the ability and potentially the interest to practice design in the everyday living of their lives. Um, So this book was a way to to share that passion with other people. Um, One of the things that I saw when I first opened the book, um, and I saw it again on the website that you've also built uh, that corresponds with the book, is the sentence, Design is art people use. I think that's one of the best definitions of design I've come across. How did you arrive at this? Well, we were trying to think, you know, if you're you're doing a book about design that's for people to implement in their lives, how do you explain what it is that we do? And it's one of the great cliches that graphic designers can never explain to other people (laughs) what it is that we make, what it is that we spend our obsessive lives devoted to. And it comes down to to using stuff, you know, that, that we're artists, We love the visual, we love the material, we love making things, but what we make is useful, and that really distinguishes design from art in the broader sense. Now, obviously you could have done this book without your students. You could have done this book with any number of people. What made you decide to do do it with your students uh, at the college that you're teaching at? Well, I, I don't think I could have done the book without them because the book is about design from a multiple point of view. I think to create a book about DIY, it almost has to have multiple authors and multiple designers contributing to it because the whole notion is democratic. The whole idea is about giving everybody a chance to participate in the act of design. As a student project, we did it because... The idea of teaching, you know, the idea of explaining what it is that we do through visual examples, to me was like the best way to end up educating yourself, that there's nothing like having to explain yourself (laughs) to make it clear. Um, And I think that as a group, we all hugely increased our own knowledge in the process of trying to share knowledge with other people. Um. You also, um, you wrote in the foreword that you believe that design is an instrument for packaging ideas and making them public. 
And that somehow sounds to me that it could conceivably include nearly everything. Um, do you agree with that? Well, in a way, design is everything. I really believe that all throughout our day, we make design decisions. I think the minute you get up out of bed and decide whether or not to make the bed, that's a design decision, and it reflects how you use your time and what your values are and what you want to communicate to yourself every time you walk past that open door. (laughs) So I think design is a universal function within life. I think that we are constantly making decisions about our environment and how we communicate and how we dress that are at bottom design decisions. Um, What we often don't do is approach it consciously. Um, And I think that that's, you know, when design really becomes exciting and when it really becomes a tool is when you begin uh, doing it in a very conscious and critical way. Design is thinking. You know, design is is looking at the world and wondering why things don't work, and, and often the answer lies with design. Well, I think in many ways then design can be a method of, of choice in the way that you live your life, which is, I think, a wonderful way of thinking about how design intersects with everybody in the world. Um, unfortunately, we have to take a break, Ellen. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, and curator Ellen Lupton. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Become a better leader. Build a great career. Learn how to successfully own and run a business. It's time for Common Sense Advice with the Common Sense Guy, hosted by Bud Belanich. With wit and an irreverent attitude towards business, life, and the business of life, Bud, the Common Sense Guy Belanich, and his interesting accomplished guests feature common sense advice on leading people, building your career, and starting and running your own business. Tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for the Common Sense Guy with Bud Belanich and walk away with common sense ideas to use right away. The Common Sense Guy, leadership, career enhancement, entrepreneurship, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the Bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf 
Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, businessamericaradio.com. The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 317 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, and curator, Ellen Lupton. Our phone lines are now open. If you'd like to join our conversation or have a question for Ellen, please don't hesitate to call us, 1-866-233-7861. And before the break, we were talking about Ellen's new book, DIY, Design It Yourself, which is an extraordinary book, a design handbook of sorts about how both designers and non-designers can make their own blogs, books, business cards, CDs, flyers, invitations, wonderful examples, wonderful instruction, very um, wonderful to read, and I encourage the listeners to look at this book and buy it. It's a truly wonderful book. Um, and Ellen, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about in the chapter that uh, I believe your sister wrote, uh, your twin sister Julia, she talks about what it means to be part of a public, part of a public in quotes, but also to have a public and to address an audience through acts of deliberate designed expression. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I was really fascinated by that that concept. Sure. Well, one of the things that makes design what it is, and especially graphic design, is that it's almost always directed out from ourselves towards somebody else. Um, If I design a birthday card for my kid's invitation, that addresses a particular public, (laughs) right? And if I make a blog that's open to anyone on the planet to come and visit and make comments, that's the public. And either way, large or small, we make design because we want to say something to other people. Design is a profoundly social activity. It connects us with the world. And that world can be very intimate. It can be our own family, our neighbors, our you know, church group or our school, or it can be something very big. It can be um, a public that's full of people that we will never meet in person and yet, nonetheless, we're communicating to them and sharing ideas with them. And, and to me, the, the thing that makes design such a fabulous and intoxicating medium is that it, it is the tools for going public. Design is the means to make those messages and, and put them out there to the people that we want to reach. Now, how would you say that design is different than from fine art or from uh, music or from poetry, literature? What would you say would be the, the biggest distinction? Well, I think that, that all art ultimately finds some of its purpose in being received and being seen or listened to or, or shared with the group. But I think with design, that's its reason to be. Um, people don't sit around and design just for the sake of it. Design is motivated. Mm-hmm. Design happens because of social situations, large and small, important and frivolous, commercial and non-commercial. 
but it happens because of the situation. Um, it, and that's what the, that's what the fun of it is. I think a lot of, um, visual people are drawn to design as opposed to fine art because they like that social component. They like that way in which it is always speaking to other people. Designers don't talk to themselves. They're very outward. They're very social people. It seems to me that that's one of the most wondrous aspects of the DIY culture, to be part of a tribe, so to speak, and to be able to create one at the same time. You're both part of one, part of a tribe, and also making that tribe. And you refer to DIY as a movement now. How and why do you think that's happened? Why now? Well, oddly enough, I think that the computer and the widespread access to the Internet has had a huge impact on building the DIY movement. And that seems contradictory because computers are so disembodied and um, supposedly non-social because you're not sitting there in a room with someone, you're at your, you know, computer screen, um, supposedly isolated. And yet the fact is um, computers have created community rather than destroying communities, um, and they have hugely expanded people's access to information and to tools. Um, the whole growth of online uh, self-education, online uh, chat rooms, um, groups dedicated to, you know, answering each other's technical problems regarding software or how to fix your car or mm-hmm. you know, how to build a solar panel or whatever. I think that the the way that the computer has expanded our access to information has only fed the desire and the ability for people to make stuff themselves. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that there's a particular reason why, aside from the computer, just from a a cultural and behavioral standpoint, why people are so um, intoxicated now by doing things themselves, even beyond um, print graphics, things like the resurgence of knitting, things like the resurgence of scrapbooking. Um, Why do you feel like there's, or do you feel like there's a new... um, energy that's being driven to these types of crafts and these types of, of um, ways in which to communicate and express ourselves? Well, I think people are, are rediscovering a kind of sacredness in making things, that there is this huge um, pleasure involved in it, huge personal pleasure, as well as an incredible social dimension you know, that, that people that love to knit often have lots of friends that love to knit and they go to knitting stores where they don't just buy yarn, but they actually sit and knit and share ideas with each other. Um, and, and that's what movements are. You know, movements aren't one person doing something. Movements are social and, and movements are events that, you know, may start in certain pockets or certain communities, but they ripple outward and they sweep people up in, in the passion of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of publishing going on. You know, Ready Made Magazine and, and Make Magazine are two great examples that mm-hmm. are part of, you know, they reflect this movement, but they're also building the movement by adding to that body of information and creating a community of, of readers. Ellen, we have a, a caller on the line. Uh, we have Gregory on the phone. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. It's great to hear from you again. Hi, Debbie. Hi. How are you, Ellen? 
Hi, Gregory. Uh, Debbie, the first question I have actually is for you, which is who got the original debutante? Sadly, <laughs> she did. <laughs> I don't have that anymore. I still to this day feel like it is a really great name for a magazine. Somewhat haughty, somewhat snotty, but a good name. Gosh. <laughs> um, Ellen, I, I actually have a question about an opinion on something from you. Um, and it has to do with focus groups and, and demographics. I, I often feel that um, brand managers depend a great deal, if not too much, on results from focus groups and from demographics. And, you know, you saying that um, design is public language. Um, you know, I, I often wonder if when people are giving their opinions and so on, if brand managers aren't looking at this information as a guideline, as information, but too often use it as the answer to make change in design, especially in traditional design of, of you know, I, icons, you know, cultural icons. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, how valid you think that is. Well, I think what you're describing is the way in which um, the most popular opinion or the most commonly held opinion within a group mm -hmm. is used to kind of flatten out the individuality or the uniqueness of a design solution. In a way, that's the opposite of, of what I'm talking about, which is about letting more individuals speak their own voice. Well, um, I always think that. Well, that's what I think, because I would opinion. think if you were to ask the people, they might not be giving the answer that um, brand people are giving in the go-ahead and design change. Well, well, focus groups are obviously a, a problematic um, <laughs> instrument, you know, because they can easily be... Um, Manipulated, right. um, there can be one person in the group who ends up being so articulate that she changes everybody else's mind. <laughs> Which you and don't want her on your jury men. if you go, you know, to trial. Well, angry consumers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gregory, did you, did you have your question answered? Yeah, I, I do. I just, I do, I, I guess more I'm curious to know, do, do you like them or don't you? Do I like focus groups? Yeah, I don't I think mean, there's do any designer on the planet that likes focus groups. <laughs> <laughs> I think we live in fear of them. Really? See, I, and that's an interesting point because why there, sh there should be no fear factor. They should be a really simple information gathering tool, and that's as far as it goes, and then everybody else should make their own decisions and debate among themselves. But I think that's the best point. Is that Well, I think as somebody that's not only been – Involved in the back room of focus groups, but also in the front room of uh, front, front room of focus groups, I could I could probably talk for three days about the flaws in the current state of market research in in the traditional sense. What's interesting, I think, and, and where I think these topics dovetail from DIY into focus groups, believe it or not, there is a connection, um, is the the methodologies that are being used now that are far more um, hands-on, far more intimate, far more um, consciously involving the consumer in a way that brings the consumer and the questioner together in, I think, a much more authentic way. And I think ethnography is probably the best way that that's happening now. Um, that's probably the, the most um, state-of-the-art or progressive. But even sort of mother-in-law research or sitting and waiting for people to walk into a Starbucks to ask them questions, standing in aisles of supermarkets and asking people questions as they're passing by, those things, I think, tend to be far more 
authentic and also far more believable. I also, like Ellen, have major issues with the standard focus group scenario where you have 10 or 12 people sitting in a room behind a glass watching 10 or 12 people in front of the glass talk about things that they may or may not have any real expertise doing. I think it's become a real business now to have people sitting in focus groups and talking about things um, that's how, they, that's how a lot of people are making money. They're making their income. Right. So I think that the, you even need to go, you know, very progressive with ethnography or very, very hands-on in a do-it-yourself way where you're talking to people one-on-one in very natural and very uh, spontaneous situations. Great. Thank you. Debbie, it's always great talking to you. Ellen, thank you very much. Thanks, Gregory. Ellen, we're coming up to another break. Unfortunately, we have another caller on the line, so when we come back from our break, we will talk to Rich from San Diego. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, curator, cultural arbiter, Ellen Lupton. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business get the competitive edge with your sales and marketing approach by tuning in to sell more with the sandler system with host dave Matson, broadcasting every monday at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern on voice america business utilizing the sandler sales institute methodologies dave shares honest no-nonsense sales and management techniques that get results while preserving your self-respect Sell More with the Sandler System is perfect for sales managers and salespeople who sell over the telephone as well as presidents and business owners who manage them. This show offers a comprehensive approach to selling, the mastery of revolutionary techniques, and an entirely new attitude towards the sales and management processes. That's Sell More with the Sandler System with host Dave Matson. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. You work hard, and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune into Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. 
Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is designer, author, and curator, Ellen Lufton. Our phone lines are open, and we have a caller on the line for Ellen, Rich from San Diego. Welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. This is Rich. Hi, Rich. How are Hi. you? I'm doing very well. Good. Thank you for uh, calling. Uh, I love the show. As Thank you. All you. Know. And uh, I was calling to uh, just let Ellen know uh, that the uh, graphic design and the mechanical aid show that she curated was for me a uh, very um, transformative. It was a, probably one of the life-changing experiences I've had, and um, I just wow. uh, I, I loved it. Uh, I was doing graphic design at the time, and uh, I was in kind of a frustrating series of jobs. And basically, I knew I wanted to do something in design, but was confounded by all the choices that were out there—furniture, industrial, whatever. But uh, I went to the exhibit when I uh, traveled to Seattle to the Henry Art Gallery at the Seattle Art Museum, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, University of Washington, and uh, it, every piece, one after the next, just my jaw was on the ground and my breath was taken away, and it was like the light had come down from above. And oh yeah, <laughs> wow! I said, "Graphic design is where I'm going," and uh, I went back to school, and uh, things are going really well with that. Now I'm doing graphic design in an architecture firm, and uh, I just really, really appreciate it. Oh, that is so great to hear. Rich, thank you so much for calling. Thank you for listening uh, to the show. I have one show. more quick question related to that. Sure. And um, that is, you know, that, that design of that era um, yeah. is so kind of iconic in its style. And yeah. to me, that speaks more prominently than many other kind of styles of design. And how, as a student studying that, do you incorporate something like a, a style without being totally referential and without being kind of a parody of it, how would you take elements of a style that speaks so deeply to you and trans- transfer that into your own work? Well, I think what that, that show is about the period, you know, 1910 to 1930 in design. And what the great designers at that time were doing is they were looking at the technology of design and wanting to use it in a really transparent and expressive way, you know, to use the machine to express its own essence as a machine, which no one had done before. And, and these technologies weren't new, but the designers were using them um, in, in a new, more critical and self-conscious and inventive way. And, you know, today we have the same situation with all these amazing tools that you can use in a really dumb way or you can use in a really exciting and fresh and transparent way. And I'm thinking about, you know, Photoshop as the great example where you can muck up the world with, you know, 50 transparent layers of, you know, filtered crap in Photoshop. (laughs) Or you can use it as this incredible, powerful, incisive image-making machine. 
And we're kind of living through uh, the, the same era again as those designers did, but with a new set of tools. You know, one of the things that you say in the book that I, I really has, has resonated with me um, for at least the last week is that we have thus arrived at a compelling turn in the evolution of design consciousness. And can you talk a little bit about more about what you mean in, in terms of design consciousness, whether it relates to um, the exhibit that Rich is talking about or the DIY culture? Well, I believe that at this moment in history, more people than ever before know about design, think about design, have access to design, whether it's well-designed products at Ikea or Target or Design Within Reach, or whether it's the tools of design, Photoshop, Dreamweaver, you know, HTML, the, the, the tools. Um, and this is new. You know, in the 1920s, people did not have that kind of access. And, and now we live in a, in a period where the kind of democratic dream of design really being accessible to a broad range of people is finally happening. And it's happening both through the world of products and better designed cities and better designed things that we can buy, but it's also happening through this broader um, access to design tools and design thinking. And I think that's revolutionary. I think it's an incredible moment to be alive as a designer and just as a citizen of the world. Well, thank you for calling, Rich. I hope that Alan answered your question, and we really appreciate you taking the time out to call the show. Thank you. Alan, I'd like to uh, take a, a little bit of a, a walk back into a book that you wrote with your husband, Abbott Miller, back in 1996, Design Writing Research. And something you wrote in the first segment of the book on design theory really struck me, and I'd like to read it to you now. Um, consider, for example, the opposition between nature and culture. The idea of nature depends on the idea of culture in order to be understood, yet culture is embedded in nature. It is delusionary to conceive of the non-human environment as a pristine setting untouched by the products of human endeavor, cities, roads, farms, landfills. The fact that Western societies have produced a concept of nature in opposition to culture reflects our alienation from the ecological systems that civilization depletes and transforms. I'm really fascinated about your thoughts on the opposition between nature and culture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, sure. I mean, I think this is an ancient idea that, that human beings have always seen themselves as apart from the world, you know, as God's special creatures that are different from and better than all the other creatures. The hubris, and, uh, the hubris. Yeah. and I think, you know, now there's there's more of a, a willingness and an urgency uh, to accept that, that we share this planet and that the civilization that we've created for all its beauty and all its incredible power and elegance um, is part of the landscape and not separate from it. Now, you you refer to deconstructivism in design writing research, and you you describe it or you talk about it in this way. Um, you, you refer to deconstructivism as a zeitgeist, uh, a philosophical germ circulating in contemporary culture that thus influences graphic designers even though they might not know it. 
How is that? How does that happen that they're influenced in a way wherein they might not even realize that they're being influenced? Well, deconstruction is a, a brilliant philosophical idea um, created by the great late French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who died just last year, and who is a you know towering figure um, in, in in recent years in, in art and in architecture and in, in philosophy. And part of his his strategy and what he meant by deconstruction was the idea of, of looking at at any opposition and finding how really the two pairs are intimately connected. For example, he was interested in margins. Um, How does the margin of a page actually control the way we read it? And if you think about graphic design and what we do, so often it's there in the margin. You know, designers crop photographs. Or in between the lines, yeah. Yeah, right, the line spacing. Um, They create the condition in which we see a photograph or read a text. We work in the margins, but we do it in a way that actually shapes the meaning of every piece of communication that you come across as you move about your day. Those margins, those white spaces, those frames, those edges around pictures, that's the condition, right? That's the physical setting in which communication occurs. Yeah. And so that idea, I think, is very powerful for graphic design, for understanding what we do. Why do you think Derrida got such an unjust obituary in the New York Times? Well, Derrida was a great intellectual, and, you know, a lot of people are afraid of that. Um, People are afraid of difficult ideas, um, ideas that are expressed in complicated language. Um, And although he is arguably one of the most or the most influential thinkers of his generation, um, there was always a group of people who were alienated by that and thought it was too hard and too sophisticated and and too complex. Um, So, yeah, when he died, the New York Times wrote really a very um, ungenerous obituary that the focused on how people had misunderstood his writing as opposed to what his real contribution to, um, you know, modern intellectual culture really was. And then Julia, your sister, she was involved in creating a website to record the signatures of the names who wanted to uh, go on the record to support um, the opposite, you know, the opposite point of view, that, that he was so important and this was such an unjust obituary. Yes, we created a, a website that allowed people from all over the world to come and, and sign their name, and it, it began as a kind of protest against that obituary, and it really became an opportunity for people to leave something behind, to participate, to be part of a memorial, and I think that's you know the incredible social function of, of the Internet now is, is not just to send out information but to give people a chance to participate in something bigger. How many signatures did you ultimately get on the website? I think it was about 3,000. Wow. Unbelievable. Why do you think that Derrida's work was so polarizing to people in this manner? Maybe it's that perpetual problem we have with the French. (laughs) (laughs) We think they're better, they're smarter, they cook better. (laughs) Well, you know... Again, I think it comes down to an anti-intellectualism and a, and a kind of a fear of of uh, the complexity of his ideas. Well, I think fear is is a big reason why people 
shark away from newness. Uh, one of my, my favorite things that you wrote in Laws of the Letter, the chapter Laws of the Letter and Design Writing Research, the everyday world is invisible until we are forced to see it differently and art is a primary means for making strange the already seen and the already known. I love that. I think that's poetry, Ellen. Um, we have to take a break. I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, and curator Ellen Lupton. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, Right here on the bottom line of business talk, Moist America Business. Learn to thrive, not just survive in business and careers. Unleash your full potential and greatness with the Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With tactical coaches and success masters, hosts Dory Willer and Eva Gregory. Dory, Eva, and their masters of thriving, expert guests, inform, educate, elucidate, and inspire with leading-edge information. The Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With Dory Willer and Eva Gregory, broadcast each Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, The Thrive Factor, success and inspiration at the click of a mouse. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 347 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, and curator, Ellen Lepton. We're in the last segment of our show, sadly. Um, Ellen, I want to talk a little bit about, just a couple more minutes about DIY. Um, 
something that you wrote in the very beginning of the book haunted me, and you're referring to professional designers here, I believe, um, and this is what you, you write. One could say that for graphic design, the barbarians have always been at the gate. We are the barbarians, the bastard children of the fine arts. We are the publicists and popularizers, the people of the street. I know that that was also mentioned on what I consider to be a very unjust review on Design Observer. I'm a huge fan of, of the Design Observer team. I'm a huge fan of the blog. I was just rather surprised at the review and felt that it was fairly inaccurate and um, don't understand where that one came from. But I, and I know that this quote was also mentioned there. Um, I'd like for you, if you can, to talk a little bit about the whole concept of why you believe we are the barbarians, the bastard children of the fine arts. Well, I think when when you talk about graphic design as a profession, it's a very new concept. Um, and so compared to professions like architecture or medicine or law, which have existed with that status for hundreds of years, graphic design as a profession is really new. And yet... Graphic design as an activity is not new. Uh, the idea of communicating a message through words and pictures is as ancient as those other fields. Um, so by calling us barbarians, I want to refer to that way in which we've always been outsiders to these more formal professions and that I feel that the real power and potential of our field as we move solidly into the next century is to embrace that part of us that is uncivilized, <laughs> that part of us that is from the street, that is from the outside. And I think there's a strong urge to um, to focus on, you know, design as a science and, you know, branding and focus groups and uh, the kind of empirical facts behind what we do. But I think that, you know, there's so much um, potential and possibility in recognizing that part of us that's savage and not professional. The gorilla aspect. And, yeah, the gorilla aspect, right, and that the, the democratic side, um, the, the, the fact that we can be the voice of, of opposition, not just of business, um, that by letting people Inside our gate, we have more to gain than by sealing off the edges. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the professions in the 20th century, you know, academia, for example, the progressive specialization of all fields of knowledge, I don't think that's a good thing. Um, and I think that generalism and opening up the borders as opposed to sealing them down is where our greatest possibility and, and potential as a, as a field lies, not as a profession, uh, not as something sealed off and closed up, but as something that is really open to public participation. Yes, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree, and I often wonder if this whole idea that designers have about being the bastard children of the fine arts, if that's something that we have coined ourselves to ourselves, or if really those outside of the profession looking in even consider that something relevant or something accurate. You know, our own sort of self-hatred perpetuates it. Our own own, um, insecurity. Lack of self-esteem, yes. 
Well, it could be, but it's also, you know, what does it mean to be a bastard? Really, the term just refers to legitimacy, right, and to the legitimation of the academy, the legitimation of a license, um, the whole accreditation, Michigas, which I think is the most ridiculous thing, the notion that you should, you know, get letters after your name that say you're a certified, registered, legally acceptable graphic designer. <laughs> like, we don't need that. We don't need to be, quote, legitimate. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is really what that word is all about. Mm-hmm. Well, in response... I prefer not to be legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be on the fringes. <laughs> I strive to be on the fringes, honestly. Um, In response to the Design Observer Review, your sister Julia wrote in, and she wrote this, um, Design It Yourself has changed not only how I live, shop, cook, and raise kids, but also how I conceive of my own job at the university. More creation, less critique. More thinking, less knowledge. More conversation, less expertise. More publishing, but in new media and from more publics. And for me, that sounds a lot like more freedom, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering how what do you agree with what your sister is saying? Yeah, it's more more being positive, less being negative, you know? <laughs> more getting out there and doing something instead of um, complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I, I think that's DIY. It's very proactive. It's very optimistic. It's, um, it's inclusive, which is something yeah. that I think is really necessary now. I mean, for all of our sort of whining in, in the design community about being bastard children of the fine arts, and I hear it a lot, on the other hand, we're awfully exclusive about who we want to let into this little club. And, and there's some, something somewhat, um, I think, incongruous about that. Let them all in, I say. Mm, yes. Um, we have another caller on the line, um, which we'll have to do very quickly because we only have about three more minutes. Uh, Lisa from New York, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Ellen. Debbie, I love Hi, your Lisa. show. <laughs> um, I, I know you're married, Ellen, to Abbott Miller. And I just wanted to know if it's really difficult or to be married to someone in the business, per se. Like, do you find yourself competing even not planning to compete, but you compete, and do you find because you're married to someone in the business that it's just all-consuming? Only in the best way because we know what to talk about. (laughs) We don't really compete because our work is different, and the greatest fun is when we get to collaborate on something like a book or an exhibition and put our two, you know, different talents together. Um, But I'm um, very happy being married to someone in the business because I'm, Never bored, and I always get to talk about design, which is really my whole life, my whole religion, my whole my whole oh, stick. You know? Yeah, I completely relate. I, I love being able to share that with whether it be friends or family or significant others. Thank you for calling, Lisa. Sure, thank um, you, guys. Ellen, in our, our last couple of minutes, I'd just like to ask you some questions from my little pop culture quiz that I'd like to ask my guests. Little okay. questions that I'm thinking about or curious about or obsessing over. Silly questions, really. Um, what book are you currently reading now? Uh, Everything Bad is Good for You by Stephen Johnson. Ah, okay. Um, what do you secretly wish you could do better? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, illustrator. Okay. Um, name one guilty pleasure. 
uh, vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the name of your favorite font? Scala. Nice. Well, everybody, Ellen, we've come to the end of the show today. I'd like to thank the magnificent Ellen Lupton for joining me today, the wonderful people at Voice America for all their assistance, our great callers. I'd especially like to thank Ruben Colomb and Brian Travis at Voice America. I'd also like to thank my staff and my lovely partners at Sterling, including Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Please join me next week with my very special guests, Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones from the Type House, Heffler Frere-Jones. Until then, please remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.